welcome back to another episode of the Carpangler Chronicles podcast. Today we've got another special guest for you. Uh, we have Fennel Hudson, who's probably best described as an angling and countryside author, broadcaster, publisher and editor. Fennel, welcome along. I've probably missed lots and lots out on that introduction. For those of the listeners that don't know you, how would you best describe yourself? Uh, hello, hi. Uh, I would say, and in order to win the audience over, I'm simply a carp angler. I love carp. I love carp fishing. I've fished for carp for about 30 years, and that has led me to do all the things that you just described. So yes, I'm an author. I've written about a book a year for about 30 years. I'm probably best known for the Fennel's Journal series. I am editor of the Grayling Society publications. I'm a podcaster, a YouTuber, a publisher of books a and now a conservationist with the wild carp trust mm. so that i guess that's me and we can explore any of those that you like in however long we've got for this podcast superb i mean i think the the main reason that we're here and the, the thing that kind of brought us together is the wild carp trust um which i appreciate has been running for for many years behind the scenes but is recently just kind of been fully fledged into an official launch i believe um so i'm sure we'll be talking lots and lots about wild carp uh, i believe you've fished with the great chris yates and and some other like-minded people is that correct i'm sure we'll talk about that i have indeed chris was my big inspiration back in the late 80s and he and i got to fish together and become good fishing pals particularly in the 90s on on a lake called jade lake which he wrote a book about yeah. called the secret carp the secret yeah yeah uh, that led me to joining a, a secret organisation that nobody's ever allowed to talk about, but it is called the Golden Scale Club. Uh, and that led me to meeting and fishing with and knowing some of the real carp fishing greats. So people like Morris Ingham, Jerry Berth-Jones, Peter Stone, Bernard Venables, Peter Wheat, Mike Winter. Uh, all these people took this young kid, as I was at the time, you know, 21 <laughs> years old, under their wing and say, come over here, lad, and we'll show you how to fish. And uh, don't be nervous or intimidated, but there's this whole wealth of fishing out there, and we just want to share that with you. And particular ways of fishing, which have shaped the way that I fish now. And, and a lot of it at the time was what we tend to call traditional angling now, as you'd imagine fishing with Chris, you know, it's bamboo rods and centipede reels and all that stuff. Uh, and I did fish like that almost exclusively for about 20 years. And now I'll fish in any way you like, and I'm, I'm happy sitting behind a, a set of rods and laying the traps and, and, and wait, waiting for the fish. But I much prefer stalking my fish and traveling light and going in search of them and fishing these oldie worldy, uh, oldie worldy uh, waters where the wildies live. Mm. I had no idea you were a member of the uh, the illustrious Golden Scale Club. We'll definitely come back to that. Um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. I'm guessing that's where fennel comes from. It is. So just for clarity, just so people know, so my name's Nigel, um, but I haven't really been known as Nigel for about 25 years. And back in uh, 1994, 95, uh, Chris Yates invited me to join a syndicate called the Jade Lake Syndicate. And as you do when you join a, a, a new water, particularly a, a high profile one like that, you, you do all your homework and you're asking around of how am I going to catch these fish? I don't want to, you know, I feel like I'm way out of my league fishing with people like Terry Lampard and Tim Norman and 
and, and Chris and others, you know, and I'm 21 and pretty clueless. And yes, I've caught a few little wildies and odds and sods, but nothing on this level. So I did my homework and it turned out that the, the car, which for about five years had been pretty much ignoring all the bait that had been thrown at them and had started to switch on to bigger beds of bait, particularly uh, like microfeed. So, so the in bait was, was party blend, you know, the seed bait, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if it had been flavoured with fennel. So this is what all the, the, the locals, the, the, the syndicate members were, were telling me. And at the time I was a gardener working on a big estate near Newbury. And I thought, God, you know, we've got a herb garden about half an acre and it's absolutely chock full of fennel. It's growing like a blooming weed. So I got, went out there with a wheelbarrow and I pulled up literally a wheelbarrow load of fennel and uh, used this stuff and mushed it all up and boiled my party blend up with this fennel. And the stink was so bad, um, apparently, and I didn't know this. Every time I went and met one of the anglers when I finally visited, and as you do, you, you're shaken by the hand and you say, hi, I'm Nigel, I'm the new member. And they're like, oh, yeah, nice, you know, good, you know, tight lines to you. Unbeknownst to me, everyone on that syndicate were like, were saying to each other, have you met the new guy? Have you, have you met that? And they're like, oh, yeah, did you smell his hands? Bloody fennel. <laughs> so, so my nickname, not by choice, suddenly became fennel because I just dunk everybody out with this blooming herb. And uh, there's a guy called Sean Lindsley, who was a quite a well-known uh, maker of split cane rods in the 90s. And he was on the syndicate. And I actually took his place when he left the syndicate. And uh, that kind of gave him the, the right to, <laughs> to solidify this nickname. So if you take him my place, then you're going to be known as Fennel. Uh, and he made me a couple of split cane cart rods and he, he put uh, Fennel under the cork. Uh, and he said, I've used the proper stuff. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're like a prat. You've been boiling up blooming herb out the garden. Whereas everybody else is using fennel essential oil, you know, just to, in a pipette and just a drop or two in there. And that was doing the job. And I do literally a barrel load of the stuff. Um, so he put some of this fennel essential oil under the cork of my handle. And when I was then proposed to join the Golden Scale Club about a year later, you have to have a club name. Mm-hmm. So Chris's name is Fernie Howe. Yeah. My name became Fennel. And then because most of my fishing chums were in, in, in that club, that's what everybody uh, knew me as. And then it since became the, the pen name that I use on my books as well. So in fishing circles, anybody who knows me calls me Fennel. Love that. Uh, what a fantastic tale. Uh, I'm just glad nice. it's, I'm just glad they weren't flavoring it with rosemary. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could have been, you could have been stitched up a little bit there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, we've got Pete, Pete's quietly getting uh, drunk in the background. How you doing, Pete? You say hello. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very good. How are you doing, Nigel? I'm good, Pete. Thank you. Nice to, nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, you joined the Golden Club at the age of 21. That must have been really quite daunting at the time. It was actually. Uh, I, I'd corresponded with Chris from when I was a student and uh, had known him well through his letters and we'd fished together on the Hampshire Raven. But I remember going to my first m- gather meeting and you've got these great people there, you know, these truly great people that I've known about for all, all my life, all, all the classic fishing books that I'd read since I was a kid. Uh, with the exception of like Richard Walker or BB, all my heroes were there in front of me, and I'm 21. 
-hmm. But the thing I would say is every single one of them consistently from the second I met them throughout their lives, always, always had a down to earth, very warming, welcoming nature and kind of fathered me really. And, and it was, I, I remember Peter Stone particularly, uh, we were fishing on the Hampshire Avon for barbel and I was standing on my own by my car, just like not knowing what to do or anything. And Pete called me over and he goes, come on over here, son, and uh, come and join us. And that not just broke the ice, but it just made me know that I was in good company and protective company. And then he decided not to fish that afternoon. And he said, what I'll, what I'll do is I'll take you along to my swim where I've baited it and we'll see if we can catch you a fish. And he just sat next to me and he sacrificed his own rod to let me fish. Um, just because he would much rather I have caught than, than himself. And, and, and so that was, that was the induction I had um that was just fantastic and everything that you would hope to happen and you would hope to know from your heroes was was true and that they were such good guys great guys um, yeah no, i think back now actually <clears throat> sorry guys it sounds amazing it's, it's it's an unbelievable tale to be honest it it was lucky i mean i was just really fortunate uh having sort of mentors sponsors whichever you know Chris taking me under his wing and, and and not just fishing with me and guiding me through my fishing and my, my thinking and my approach to angling and, and the natural world but you know I, I wouldn't be a writer now if it wasn't for Chris I wouldn't be uh, an artist illustrator or I wouldn't see the countryside with an artist's eyes if it wasn't for Bernard Venables because the two of them between them really shaped how I see fishing. And then particularly Peter Wheat uh, as a, you know, my best mate and um, a professional writer, professional author would encourage me to write by doing, and he, you know, in 25 years, he's never once sat me down and say, this is how you write, this is good copy. Instead, he and I would share letters every week and just write and write and write. And I would learn simply by reading his writing and how he, how he phrased things. And then the other huge influence was Mike Winter. And, and on the subject of Wild is it's categorically Mike who fanned the flames of an enthusiasm that was already there, but massively, massively, massively fired me up to go and search for Wildies and fish in a way that was so more in tune with the carp as a wild fish rather than the carp as a conditioned fish that you get to come into your world or into um onto your bait or to your preferred swim or whatever it is you know you very much went to the fish and traveled as light as you could to go and catch those fish you still there pete yeah, sorry. <clears throat> I am. I looked like you were. I'm uh, sorry. I'm watching the screen. That like you were going to jump in. So no, 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 no. Sorry, I thought you were going to round that up. I tell you what, though. I now, now I kind of have jumped in. Uh, before we go any further, tipple of the episode. Fennel, I, I see you. Uh, you you swigging away there. What what is it you got? 
I am on a, uh, it's a Malbec, and I think it's a Californian Malbec. Mm. So trying to bring a little bit of Hollywood to the podcast. Yeah, I love that. Love that. In <laughs> fact, I was on the phone to you earlier, Pete, wasn't it? And I said that I like a, I like, do like a good Malbec. Um, you did, yeah. Yeah, Argentinian usually, though. I can't, don't think I'm norm- normally a... an Argentinian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this one is, um, I've not had one quite like this before. It's a very, very dark plum colour. For a Malbec, it's more like a Cabernet kind of mm. colour. Really, really dark, purpley plum colour. And uh, was good pretty much straight out of the bottle. Didn't take much breathing at all. Mm. Perhaps I have to try but I've only got the one glass. Keep Keeping it keeping it clean. Good, good stuff. I'm, uh, I actually did a, a night last night fishing and I had a few beers this afternoon. So to be honest with you, I'm feeling a little bit, little bit ropey. You'll probably hear me fumble my words, etc., um, but I've got a, where is it? Nice Atlantic pale ale. And then to follow it up, I've got a tribute. Um, Pete, you've been swinging away out the bottle. What, what are you on, my man? Yeah, so, yeah. coincidentally, uh, I'm drinking a Sharps Atlantic pale ale as well tonight. Mm. Uh, I thought I'd go for something local, because normally I don't really select my drinks for the podcast very well. So I thought I'd go to the shop and pick up a local beer. So Sharps Brewery is just down the road from me and Rock in Cornwall. But um, reading the small print, it's not actually brewed this one in Cornwall. <laughs> so I feel like I failed on my quest for a local beer. That's misleading, are. isn't it? That's just, that really is misleading. Sharps yeah, brewery, they, they sold the brewery a long time ago to, to Molston Coors. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, they're a big, big business now. Um, so where's this one brewed? It's Burtonwood. So... Yeah, it is a little misleading. I do believe Doombar is still brewed uh, in Rock and Cornwall, though. But only the car scale, the bottled Doombar, I believe, is um, brewed elsewhere in the country as well. I've actually got a Doombar here as well. I just didn't want to sound like an alcoholic. I'll have a look on the uh, on the bottle for you. Um, I'm sure this makes fantastic listening. Um, <laughs> Where does it say that it's brewed? Where it's brewed? Uh, I can't see that. Where are you reading that from, Pete? Um, just under the description on the back, Atlantic Pale Ale, and it goes through next to the Sharps logo. Oh on the back. yes, I yeah, think... yeah. Mm-hmm. Brewed in Burton upon Trent in partnership yeah. with Molson Cures. Yeah, I think all their bottled beer is brewed up there, but all the cask, all the cask beers, sort of brewed down in Cornwall still. Oh right. Boring facts for anyone listening. <laughs> it happens. I, I used to live at um, a town called Whitney near Oxford, and the, the Witchwood Brewery was about a mile up the road from me. And at 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock every day, you'd get this amazing smell of hops mm. as they start boiling up. So I'd make sure my windows are open in the study. And it was the most fantastic, like, daily treat because I love uh, hop gobbling. And uh, so I decided one day I'd go on the, the, the brewery tour. And then they're saying, like, of course, yeah, well, you know, we got bought out. And uh, although we do still brew here, we had to change supply a little bit. And the local water that we used to use is now comes from a reservoir, however many miles away. And to try and get it to taste the same, we put a load of gypsum in the water to make oh it harder. Goodness. I start thinking, what <laughs> the illusion? <laughs> this lovely little quaint little brewery behind the shops in Whitney that you could, you know, you smell every day and think, oh, how lovely is that? And it actually is a massive conglomerate to bring, bring in the water in in lorries. 
Um, but yeah, you know, end result still tastes pretty good. Yeah, it's not a bad bit. That's not too far from me, Whitney. 45 minutes ish, something like that. Okay, right. Let's. Um, Let's dive in then. So I think obviously we're going to be spending quite a bit of time talking about wild carp. For for those for those of us that don't know, and I know what a wild carp is, but I wouldn't know how to identify one, and I don't know too much about them, um, other than the fact that they seem like small stunted commons. Um, what is a wild carp? Okay, so let's. Uh, to understand wildies, you kind of need to know a bit about carp history and the evolution of carp. And then what happens to carp once they leave the fish farmer's hands. So if I frame it as um, not just as a fish, but a way of fishing. Okay. And um, carp typically, or, or the appeal of carp angling is the allure of progressively bigger fish right so you catch your first fish and you think oh that was awesome right what the hell did i just catch that fight was amazing but it's in the net and i finally caught the thing and that fires you up and then you want to catch a bigger one or more of them which leads you into the, the true specimen angling world of you, know, you want to catch your first 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or however high you want to go either in the uk or overseas and that becomes a campaign for a a particular target or a particular fish and it can become all all consuming you know and i'm absolutely part of that camp as well i, I love my big camp as well uh but i'm probably the only guy in the bcsg who got in through catching small fish <laughs> um, because wild carp the campaign actually is to try and find a strain of fish rather than an individual fish okay so the story of the wild carp goes from, uh, let's talk about first true wild carp, okay? So carp as a species originated at the end of the last ice age, 10,000 years ago in the Black Aral and Caspian Seas. And this is the sort of part of the world where Europe and Asia meets, okay? And they migrated as fish do up into the rivers that flowed into those seas. And in Europe, the most notable, noticeable one or notable one is the Danube. So these fish settled in the Danube as a wild fish, a river fish. And these are the fish that are accurately described as wild carp. Okay. And they're typically as a river fish, uh, lean, super fit have evolved in those fast currents and would look like a long lean common carp to, to visualize it and they wouldn't be particularly big uh, most of the records i've read have shown that they tend to grow to about 10 15 pounds averaging just under 10 pound i guess sometimes over 20 but rarely that big and their story goes and there's a sort of um, folklore element to this, and then there's a science element to this. The folklore and, and the science kind of blend in that about 2000 years ago, maybe more, the Romans discovered these wild carp at the Danube. When their empire extended to the Danube and they got to a place called Carnuntum, they discovered that the locals were eating these carp. And they were, 
there in vast, vast, vast shoals of, of fish. And the locals had developed these flat bottom punts, went out onto the floodplains when the rivers flood and found the carp there, uh, I guess surely not ready to spawn, but they were netting them. And they loved eating them because what they found was the carp, because they'd evolved in these fast currents, had evolved to have loads and loads of blood sugar stored in their muscles to give them that explosive strength. Yeah. Also made them really sweet to taste. So the locals knew they were a local delicacy and were eating them. The Romans cottoned onto it as well. And folklore, and some scientists will say, the Romans then cottoned onto the good idea and dispersed them around their empire. Right? Um, some will say they got as far as the English Channel. Some say they may, might just have gone back Italy or Spain way. Um, some of the science is saying they actually might not have done that but the folklore is that they did. Uh, similar folklore exists around the, the monks about a thousand years ago in the Cistercian order. And we've heard, you know, we've seen the photos or the paintings rather of monks fishing for carp and there's this association. And uh, the thought is that the, the monks imported carp and moved carp in to allow them to eat fish on their Fridays or during the Lent fasting periods when they couldn't eat meat. Um, the science is saying that probably is folklore as well, at least in the UK. It's probably true in, in Europe, but in the UK. Um, what the science is saying, or, or the, the papers I've read recently, is that the history of carp goes that the carp did evolve in the Danube as a wild fish. Some of the locals took those fry and then moved them around to various ponds and other river systems and dispersed them that way. Uh, but the fish farming side of it only really cottoned on in the sort of 1300s in a proper big way. And that's probably when the carp were introduced to the UK. So late 1300s, early 1400s. So for a UK carp angler, the carp we have here have probably never ever been wild carp. So for clarity, when we talk about wild carp in the UK, we're not talking about proper wild carp. Those are fish that evolved in the Danube, right? Um, the carp we have here were fish farmed at some point and are domesticated. So what happened was those were stopped then, but then there was this explosion in Europe particularly of fish farming and appetite for eating carp, right? Which we Brits have a sort of slight objection to now when some of the Eastern Europeans come across and start eating our carp and they don't know any different. They're just something to eat on the table. Whereas to us, it's like, ah, those, those are our carp. Don't eat those. Uh, so the UK kind of has a unique carp climate. And, and by what I mean by that is the carp were introduced as probably a, a food item in fish farms uh, and fish markets. They were introduced as a novelty item to uh, estate lakes between landowners as a gift. You know, look at these golden fish, you know, they're unusual, have some of these. But as a food source, they grew out of favour because as, as an island, we had a ready supply of sea fish, which to our palate tasted nicer. Uh, and therefore, we would much rather eat the cheaper, nicer tasting sea fish than, than carp. Whereas in Eastern Europe, they didn't have access to such sea fish and therefore the, the carp really took off. So the carp farming that happened between 1300 and, and modern day now was selectively breeding fish for the table. They were uh, selecting these fish so they're faster growing, bigger growing, 
and ultimately uh, became what we call the king carp. Okay, these fish that are the cultivated forms of a once wild strain. So, we, you know, mirror carp, leather carps, it mirrors, king common carp, etc., uh, etc. Et that can grow huge. Whereas the wildies or the older strains don't get that big and, and, and never did. And so when I refer to, or if, if, if we talk about wild carp, what we're actually talking about is heritage strains of carp, fish that were stopped perhaps in the medieval times and for some miracle have remained. They've not been eaten by humans or predators. They've not been polluted. They've not been messed around or they're not, all their waters haven't been stopped with king carp. So they haven't crossbred and hybridized. They're still there. So the, hunt for wildies is about trying to find that lost strain rather miraculously mm. doing your homework to find the lost strains that still exist okay and and how do you know when you find them <laughs> you, you can try and do your homework and get the evidence of when these waters were stocked but to look at them you would see a fish that looks a lot more like a chub and very often they're fish that have been uh, left for so many years that they've they're basically inbred and they've reverted and they are often stunted but they are chub-like in shape very often they have quite a blunt head not the carp sort of long longer pointy face very short barbels oversized fins and the classic thing you look for in a, in a wildie is uh, hardly any hump on the shoulder so the smoother the shoulder the closer you are to finding your your nirvana you know this this old old strain yeah okay, okay. so what you also find so even if you find a really old heritage strain that's been there for hundreds of years what you can also find is really uh, what we call feral carp which you may have heard of mm-hmm. so once the a king carp or a modern strain of carp leaves the fish farmer's hands and goes and then spawns in the wild. Those successive generations of breeding in the wild see the carp revert back to a wild form. So it's, it's, I don't know if it's unique to carp, but it's, it's a known thing. And, and what I've read recently is that it only takes 40 generations of breeding in the, in the wild for those fish to return to a wildlife form okay that that doesn't sorry to interject there that that pickles my brain a little bit so how what is it about their natural breeding process that would differ from them breeding in a in a fishery for example don't understand i think i think it's to do with fry survival and reading some papers recently about fish farming and i forget the exact percentages but it's about 90 percent of common carp survive and there's a less and then there's mirror carp and then the, the least and then what one percent is like leather carp and i forget the exact percentages but the numbers are stacked in favor of common carp surviving over over mirror carp in, in the wild okay um and you've only got to look at it like uh, waters like redmire right so stocked with 
Galicians put me you know, fish from Poland in was it 32, 34? Of a really, really great strain that grew enormous, as we know. And in the 70s and 80s, some of those original fish were still huge. Chris's fish broke the record in 1980. And then after then, you see that those fish and their offspring become progressively smaller. Uh, and when I fished over the past 20 years, the fish are more in the sort of 20 pound category than 40 or 50 pound. Same water, different circumstances, admittedly, more angling pressure, probably, you know, all, all sort of mix of, of things that's going on there. But carp um, revert when they go back in the wild over, over generations. Hmm, so the sweet spot, if you're a wildy, yeah, for a sweet spot for a wildy fan is finding a water. Firstly, is to find a water that was stocked in 13, 14, 1500s, potentially, and has never been stocked again with a king carp strain. Because then you've got fish that hadn't had all those extra centuries of selective breeding. Plus you've got reversion. So those fish are like little torpedoes, right? The next best thing is finding a water that has uh, been reverting over time, over maybe 100 years, where you get these uh, feral fish that are not quite what I would call a wildy, but they're, re you know, they're really lean, really lean. Mm. Okay. So is, is there any kind of hard and fast way that you could identify, a, uh, you know, what we would now call a wildy? I know with levers, um, you, you would count the rays on the anal fin. Is there anything like that for, 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 for wild carp, heritage carp, whatever you wish to call them? So, yeah, we'll call them heritage carp. So, so wild carp in the Danube, you know, you can DNA test them and, and you, know what you, you know what you've got. And they're still the, present, I presume, in the Danube. Only just barely. No, really? no, no, no. We've absolutely knackered it for them, frankly. Uh, so in the 50s, they were still there in their thousands. Uh, we then built hydroelectric dams across the river that f stopped some of the migrations, but, but most importantly flooded the, the once shallow spawning plains. So they lost their habitat. Mm. And they've also crossbred with king carp that have found their way back into the Danube. So there was, a, there was a, quite a well-known paper in the 80s that did a big survey of the Danube fish. And less than 0.1% of the fish caught were true wildies. Um, fortunately they do still exist they, they so those fish were rescued and put into living gene banks in scientific institutes and uh, they do also live in the wild still in small pockets of fish uh sort of uh, greece turkey some of those countries that go into the caspian sea they, they are still there but they are incredibly rare they, 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 they're uh, uh, they're on the vulnerable list globally not right. they don't call them critically endangered but they're they're, they're called vulnerable because right. their wild population is predicted to halve in the next 10 years and, and half from less than what 1.1 percent is pretty desperate got much to play with there as you know um yeah. anyway sorry I, I took you off uh off course there is there is there a concise way to to just find out if you you've caught a fish to find out if it's a heritage carp or or not so Looking at the fish is really problematic, right? So I've been talking to some fishery scientists in the past week about this. Um, to do it on the look and the shape 
is problematic because how do you know you've caught a, a really old strain of carp versus a new strain that's been stunted in its formative growing years, right? Uh, and you, you can get both, right? The, the pure way that the smaller the, the hump on the shoulders or the less noticeable that the notch behind the back of the head where the shoulders start, that, that is one, one way. Mostly it comes down to trying to find the provenance of the water. So ideally you're looking for stocking records or local knowledge of when were these fish introduced, how long have they been there, uh, some sort of evidence. Uh, the scientists this week have been saying, really, you've got to DNA test them. Uh, and, and we know that you're actually de DNA testing feral common carp because they're not true wildies. They're fish that were once once a common carp and have since become feral through the, these years of reversion. So you might end up with a result that says genetically they're exactly the same as a common carp, right? It's just that the strain has got smaller and smaller over the years. But there's there's probably some valid research that's needed to say, okay, that being said and done, are there any markers, are there any genetic markers that differ between these strains, let alone this size of fish, but this strain over uh, other ones in different parts of the country? You know, were they all part of a batch that came across at a certain time? I don't know. Uh, but it gets a bit geeky, you know, it gets quite scientific and i'm not a scientist i'm an angler you know i just love going and fishing for carp and and the appeal for wild is for me uh, and i'm do you know what i'm not that precious about about is it a purebred well wrong term is it a heritage carp is it a wildie is it a feral carp does that matter no, no i don't really care about that uh, it's a sliding scale between 50 pounder in the making and three pounder if it's lucky in the making you know? mm. <laughs> poor poor relative because to me that there the appeal in fishing for them is going and finding these waters that's the quest that's the quest yeah. and um i remember talking to martin bowler at a barb society do a few years about oh, blimey 10 years ago or more and uh, he was saying that you know in in them good old days you know when you're looking for waters you'd be getting your ordnance survey map out and you're looking for blue dots and you might be at school and it's like, where can I cycle? <laughs> How far can I cycle to go find a, a carp water? And, you know, um, does it contain a monster carp that's never been caught or uh, is, it, is it hammered? You know, does everybody know what, all the fish got names? Um, and, and Martin said that, you know, the, the landscape's changing on this now. So it, what began as a secretive, got to put in the miles kind of job in hand has become enabled by things like satellite maps and uh, the forums and catch reports in the, in the angling weeklies and all these things that help you to find your fish and find out where these big fish are coming from, what waters, which anglers, so that you, your, your homework becomes a, a bit forensic in knowing what the anglers are up to as much as where these fish are. Uh, and when I discovered wildies in, in the late eighties, it was before the internet. And the way you did it was you started with a, uh, an ordnance survey map out of WH Smith's brand new. You'd find a blue dot. Maybe it said fish pond next to it. Uh, and then you'd go down the county records library and you'd find the old maps. Now, none of these maps are all online now, but in those days you'd go and ask 
a very nice librarian, like, can I have map number such and such from 1700 and whenever to see if the pool was still there then? Mm. So if the water they were in existed then, that's an old water. So so you're looking for moats around historic houses, farm ponds, estate lakes, stew ponds, mountain lakes, natural lakes, uh, a long way away from sort of gravel pits, you know, modern day gravel pit world. And you're looking for the waters first and foremost, and then you get on your push bike or, or your car and you go there and you have a look and try and get there at dusk or dawn when the cart might be seen leaping or, or whatever. Um, rarely used to do it at, at the obvious time, middle of the day when they'd be there basking, because you'd probably get kicked off for trespassing, <laughs> get off my land. Um, so the, the quest was always for the waters to try and find them. And then if you did find a carp, that was a result, you know, and that might be a king carp that's a double figure fish. Very often they were, uh, particularly where I, I grew up, uh, not too far from the Black Country area of Birmingham. So my, my local counties were Shropshire and Worcestershire. So I was looking around Shropshire mostly. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty lean part of the country for, for king carp. You know, we've got Patsall. Uh, there was, uh, I wish there was a Shatterford, which was a, a, a commercial fishery near me. But there weren't that many big carp waters in the area. Mo- most of the waters were old estate lake waters that had carp in them almost all of them had carp but you'd struggle to catch one over 10 pound that they were that they were in that sort of five to ten pound stamp Uh, and that was my introduction to carping that's how i caught my first fish and that was the size and style of fish that became the norm for me that in later life strangely has been what i've been searching to try and find again so you're looking for these type of carp in that type of environment that's very very oldy worldy and the carp complement that yeah you got the shropshire mares though haven't you oh it's much more further north than me oh is shropshire it mares, uh, sort of ellesmere way yeah yeah uh, yeah i i like uh, classic semi-brummy lad really uh, and so i was my i was uh cycling distance from me was would have been a place called bridge north which is about 12 miles north or Worcester, about 20 miles south. Uh, and that's like River Seven territory. It's great soil, really like deep red, red marish type soil. That, that's uh, near Bromsgrove, right? Not. Yeah, Bromsgrove, yeah. yeah. That's not too far from me. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so the, the, the lakes were, I mean, they're gorgeous fishing, you know, real proper oldie worldy ponds with little carping. Uh, the irony of course at the time when i was young was i loved carp but i was very much reading uh, a lot of chris yates's books bb's books uh, the library just started to get tim pace's books in there as well uh, and so i was becoming aware of these big carp and fuck me I, I was looking everywhere to try and find a 20 pound carp <laughs> looking at <laughs> and all these little fish that i was catching and thinking oh really you know why can't i catch a 10 pounder you know let alone a 20 and so the effort and miles that I was putting in the early days was, was really very much around trying to find a big carp. Um, whereas now I'm using all that homework to say, you were finding some fantastic waters with some really lovely old strains of carp in them. So to go back and, and go back and find them and hopefully they haven't been stocked with, with, uh, with some Simos or something uh, and, and enjoy that. How, how much, so obviously, 
um, you're talking about sort of like the hunt for these waters that were stopped in the 1700s, etc. How many of them are out there, do you think, for you to find still? Because presumably, I mean, you're, you're reasonably quite well sort of connected in these circles. Um, how many of these sort of waters do you think are out there still to find? How many gems are there? I couldn't put a number on it. I would... So I've been looking for wildies since 1988. Uh, I wrote a book about the quest of the first 20 years of that quest. And at that time, I'd probably identified 12 waters which still had like really old strains of carp in them. Of those 12, some now have had king carp put in. Uh, a couple are being heavily predated by, by otters and cormorants. The, the bit that, that the reason I can't put a number on it is, is because because these these wildies are so rare and those that are passionate about them are um, so protective of them that they're what I call the, the best kept secret in carp fishing because people don't tell you about these waters sometimes they don't know they're there and they're under their under their nose but very often when they find them they don't say where they are because the, for every person you tell or, or take along to fish for them, there's going to be probably a hundred people who would much rather have king carp in them, who would see them as little yeah. runted, runted, stunted, mm-hmm. crappy little carp that they'd rather net out and put some proper king carp in that are bend their rod a bit more. Uh, so they're kept really, really, really secret. Uh, and and I, I've recently moved up to, to North Wales and my two favourite carp, wild carp waters are in mid Wales, and I've just discovered a third one from an old old book from the 1800s that had carp in then and, and was a, quite a famous wildy water in that in that time, and they're still there, uh, and that's a discovery that you think, mm. oh, you know, people are walking up through the mountains and they're seeing these fish, and, and so you you go on these forums and you like hiking forums or ordnance survey stuff people talking about these carp and you think no those fish are still there by some miracle and i think it's because they're in the middle of nowhere that they're not your classic carp you know it's of a push with a carp burrow up a mountain uh, and they're quite away from other carp waters so that, you know that they're bringing eggs in on a heron's foot or something i don't think that happens and you know uh, I, I dare say it's a long hard hike up for an otter or something as well up there as well. So those waters are still there and very often they are in private residences as well. So I know of a couple of moats around uh, one's a national trust property. Another one is a private property where there's some cracking, cracking wildies in those pools, but you can't fish for them and they'll never, well, currently wouldn't allow fishing. And I think that's part of the reason they're still there. It's because no anglers bending their ear to say, can we fish a warm or can we put some fish in? Because all we're catching is small ones, uh, which helps them to survive. That's what I was going to ask, actually, because, I mean, in and I could well be wrong here, in my head, when I think wild carp, I tend to think of whales. A, am I, am I right or am I wrong? And B, if I'm right, is it, as you've just said, just because there aren't that many fisheries in whales, it's a little bit more remote, a little bit more bleak? 
yes, it is. Uh, your association with Wales, sadly, has probably come from some of my writings about 12 years ago uh, uh, and, and stuff. For, uh, there's myself and John Bailey wrote about them and John did a, a little film as well, uh, which kind of put them on the map. And so, you know, the, a lot of the YouTubers and magazine articles and that have been written about wilders in, in Wales. Mm. Uh a story, my connection with Wildies in Wales came from Mike Winter and we were fishing a, a cart water down in, in Devon and uh, yeah, having a glass of wine and you know, late into the night and all that kind of stuff. And I'd been looking for Wildies for about 10 years and, and Mike said to me, he said, you need to get focused, you need to know where to look. Uh, and his approach in, he lived, he lived in... Um, Ottery St Mary, so he was sort of a Devon guy. Oh yeah. So he he pretty much knew every wildy water in Devon and Cornwall because those that was his local stamp. And his approach to finding them was, uh, and Mike was adamant they were Roman these fish. You know, I said earlier that the evidence isn't there to support it, but Mike was saying the way to find old wildies is find a map of Britain with the old Roman roads on it. Trace the Roman roads to where you can find a monastery and then look on really old maps for the sign of fish ponds around that monastery. And his view was if the Romans brought them in or the monks brought them in, they'd probably be living in those waters or some nearby uh, that the locals might have moved them. And he said, right, you know, at the time I was living at Worcester, and he said, right, your best bet probably is Wales because that's, shooting distance from you and do the same which uh long story short you know you follow the map follow the roman roads and the maps and you see okay uh they go up to anglesey and they're cutting south end of uh snowdonia and there's monasteries in mid wales around built wales particularly and that's where you want to be looking uh, and those are where i found waters with these wild wild carp in and, and Wales is kind of unique because you don't really associate it with carp. It's more trout, trout mm -hmm. and sea trout zoo in. And, uh, you know, you go up in the mountains with a fly rod and you don't think anything of it, but you go up into the mountains and find carp. It's, it's kind of weird. And the first thing you think is some local angler just put these in. <laughs> it's, it's like their, their own little personal carp pond that they'd nick some fish from somewhere and stuck them in, a, in their local lake so that only they can fish from them. Um, but then you start asking around and you start chatting to locals in the pub and get you know, it, they, it becomes known that they are well known in that area and they've always been there. Every, you know, they've been there as long as people can remember. And there may be associations with the monks and the monasteries um, that in the instance of like Linguin or Panticlean, that are well-known wildy waters are, are within like a triangle of three monasteries. And that leads to all these wonderful images, imagery of, you know, where are the monks going from monastery to monastery and having to camp over on, on a mountainside so at some point and needing something to eat? And <laughs> did they put them in there? And, and all these lovely thoughts. And, you know, it might be true, it might not be, I, I don't know. But the imagery's there and it's a lovely thought that some person has to have put them in there because there's no stream in, no stream out, and they are exactly. thousand foot or more up a mountain. Uh, 
and somebody saw the appeal of carp, which as we do now as modern carp anglers, somebody in bygone ages thought, I really love carp. I, I probably, I really love eating carp, but I really love carp and I'd like them to be in my local waters. And they've somehow got hold of them, transported them and moved them to these waters in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I, I like the, the, the monastery connection. And so the evidence isn't there for the, well, not, not in early Cistercian stuff, but latter year monastery, yes. Um, but the, 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 the Cistercian order um, didn't have to pay taxes in the UK. So they, they were rogues. They used to trade so much stuff. And uh, the king would give them real old crappy land, which they were really smart. and thought, well, do you know, watch crappy land, but we can stick some sheep on there and then make a fortune out of selling the wool. And I kind of like the thought that they did the same with the carp as well that we've been given this old lake, you know, there's not even any trout in it. I mean, how bad's that? <laughs> We're in Wales, there's no trout in there. So we'll stick some carp in. And, and I like that thought. It's lovely. It's very romantic, isn't it? You can uh, you can get lost in that kind of stuff for sure. I'm going to have to pop pop for a wee real quick. Pete, you're welcome to take over. Sorry. Ben, I'll as soon as I can. In the end, no worries. Um, so, so before, well... I mean, I guess, I guess what well, I was going to sort of lead into, but I guess Sam needs to be here. I was going to go on a little trip down sort of memory lane and sort of try and remind Sam of um, sort of the, the most uh, wild-like fish. Oh, you can still hear us? Cool. The most wild-like fish we've ever caught. What's he peeing in? I dread to think. <laughs> He's got an empty yeah. bottle, hasn't he? He's just gone off. off. Yeah. Quite scary. We can hear, um, we can hear you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like you've uh, you've known Sam for years, Fennel. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, sometimes we do these pods, and you can just yeah, off he pops. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but if you can hear us, Sam, what do you think the most wildish carp you've ever caught is? Because I've got a real sort of um, a water in my head where we've had some pretty lean specimens. And before the pods, I've, I've gone onto the, uh, your, your Wild Carp Trust website and I've been through sort of like, you've got um, how to identify sort of like a, like a wild carp. And um, I think down in Cornwall, the most wildish carp I'm looking at was what you call like a feral carp with a, a moderate reversion. I don't know if you remember our time on Boscafno, Sam, but there were some yeah. incredibly lean lean commons in there weren't they with some really big fins um certainly look like i mean they look like just like a, a male carp i guess but incredibly lean um torpedo yeah. like body no sh no shoulders incredibly big fins i don't know if you remember those those fish they certainly weren't wild they would have been stocked at some point and they were mixing with multiple different strains of carp but yeah first off I've got a bathroom right next to my office, H hence why I can still <laughs> yeah. hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> bathroom, um, aka bucket. <laughs> <laughs> um, Boss Cathno. Now, this is where my memory fails me. My memory is absolutely shot to pieces. Which one was? Bo I know the name so well. Boss Cathno. Whereabouts is that, Pete? It's, da it's down near Penzance. Yeah, it's a little reservoir. Um, I'm thinking Mill Pool, aren't I? Not you Mill are. Pool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Boss Kaffner. Uh, it used to be the home of the infamous oh, Biggles. Oh, yes, Boss Caff. Yes, Boss. Yes, Boss Kaffner. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the the damn wall. Um, I had the the incident with the chili in my eye. That place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we fished there a bit actually, yeah. didn't we? We did we did a little bit of time there. Um mm. yeah, they were they um yes, they were. I think they were just a lot of stunt, you know, quote unquote stunted commons um males, but I think, you know, the 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 head of tree style carp don't look like males. I don't think they have the big pectorials, do they? Fennel. Huge pecs very often. They do. The wild yeah, 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 ah, yeah. See, so yeah. I'm envisioning something else. Okay. Think of a yeah. Th- think of a chub with fins that are twice the size. Right. Uh, they have big pecs, big tail, which sometimes is the, the tail is a little bit more less rounded lobes, more more pointy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on, on that. Yeah. And uh, almost a abnormally high first ray or two on the dorsal looks quite so it's like i've seen some pictures recently or drawings of them rather and think it's like they got is he started drawing a grayling or something by mistake because they're really high and so it got me looking through my old album of, of wildies and it's like you know i'd never noticed that catching them but when you get the odd photo where they stick the dorsal up and the dorsal's quite big mm. um, so, so so i hope that you're quite typical to a lot of carp anglers that they probably got a wildy story in there somewhere, maybe in their early years where they're just starting out and just grateful to catch a carp. Probably didn't whatever know. water wouldn't have known. Maybe didn't wouldn't have know. known the difference. Yeah. And, um, and sorry. Yeah, it, it just becomes part of our our journey towards mm. becoming a carp angler, and and very often, admittedly, those those fish have a sort of novelty value. And they're nice, but you kind of want to move on and catch a bigger one and, and set yourself a bigger challenge or a harder water or something or a lower, lower dense stocking density or something where you're trying to stack the odds against you to make it harder so that those fish are, are more rewarding when you get them. Whereas the reality, when you find a, a water that's stock full of, as you said, stunted carp, they're pretty easy. They're plumbing hungry. Uh, and as long as your watercraft say, you'll catch loads. And they're great fun. One rod, floater fishing usually, free lining, and you catch all afternoon long. And that can be great, but eventually you, you can tire of it and you want to think, I just want to, I want to set a bigger challenge here and then I'll, I'll go for something. And I would imagine if, if you're down in Cornwall, you then start thinking, where's my local big cart water? And have, have I suddenly got to jump in the, in the car and do a, a six-hour round trip to go and find a big fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the opposites, the opposite is what I found myself doing. So when I lived at Whitney, we got linear fisheries on the doorstep, which I, I never fished. Uh, Horrible and, place. Yeah, in my... <laughs> I've never fished it. I, 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 I drove there um, months ago, and uh, yeah, not my cup of tea. Apologies to anyone that fishes there, but that will get us into some uh, trouble, I'm sure. <laughs> I probably, I didn't fish it, but I probably disagree with you. I, I thought it was quite nice. Really? Uh, and I, I, well, I was looking at it with a different lens. So, yes, it was, it was, it was busy. Car park was full, every swim was taken. And this was, I, I'd skived off work and I'd gone there on a Friday lunchtime thinking I'd get there when no one was there. I didn't know. I think people were there all week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was looking at it from a, uh, more of a tench angle, actually, and the thought of going there with two rods and light baiting and just try and catch some tench. 
whereas the reality was it was like a bombardment of spots uh, these bombs going in it, it just they got there at i don't know midday or something on the friday or or thursday thursday night probably and they they spent about four hours spotting that they're baiting uh whereas my style of angling is turn up and don't let them know you're there and just creepy yeah. crawly around and try and wiggle one out within 20, yeah, in the edge and 20 minutes of starting um so from that side it was an education but the the waters i, I actually quite like the waters there they were vast and, and i haven't done a lot of gravel pit fishing but i did like that scale element to some of these waters that that uh a different sort of watercraft which for me I, I tend to try and let the carp show me where they are whereas that style is very much leading around with your marker float and finding the bars and the features and piecing it together that that map that's going on under the water um, and that appealed to me um, I very nearly joined a water called Rockford down near Ringwood uh, on the Ringwood ticket I doing some work down in Bournemouth and, and you know I'm, I'm a guy mostly fishes with bamboo rods and 50 yards is a hell of a long cast to me <laughs> you know uh, and these guys are doing 200 yards with spot five out five pound tesco spot rods mm. to catch these 50 pounders admittedly but that still appealed to me it was, it was it was terrifying the distance and the gear they were using to get to that range but it was a massive challenge and, that, and i do like a challenge in fishing and the thought that You've got to adapt and change your tack on this 50-acre lake to catch these 50-pound carp, um, says he who's, who loves his little carp and his wildies. But <laughs> that, was, that was special. Uh, but it wouldn't be, to, wouldn't be to everyone's taste. Do, it, hmm. Does fishing in your way on those kind of waters, does that not appeal to you? Next week I'll be on a hundred and... 122 acre lake but i'll probably be fishing the margins at least one rod so does that not appeal to you just just the vastness but still you're getting them in the edge and getting that up close personal i, I rarely give myself that choice because I, I, i'm really crap at casting distances okay. <laughs> <I'm really hopeless>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah i i it would give me a sense of satisfaction because i love using center pins i prefer using two rods rather than three and I like a through-actioned rod anyway. Like the, you know, like the free spirit uh, bank creepers are just gorgeous, gorgeous rods. Um, so to be able to find fish in the margins, yeah, you know, absolutely. I, that's where I'd like to catch them. Um, but I wouldn't, in theory, I wouldn't limit myself to that. I think if, if all the fish were being caught at range, that's where the fish wanted to be and that's where the fish wanted to feed sensible thing is you know mm -hmm. you know clench your butt at cheeks and buff one out if you can you know into the, into the horizon i talk about it a lot on the pod is like ca catching them on your own terms so like you i've i guess my my um my like childhood growing up was like fishing with my father um who's a super keen fly angler um or if we weren't sort of fly fishing, we'd be on the on the rocks just spinning for bass. And it was always just super light tackle, a rod, a little box of lures um, and really mobile. And then since like coming into carp fishing, I've always struggled um, with the idea of taking like, yeah, it's like home from home, isn't it? A lot of the time. 
Um, so I often get caught between the two. <laughs> well, yeah, but I've I've always had a thing where I try and um, I try and travel super light. But I think, like you were saying about it's it's I've said this a lot of time on a podcast. It's it's on your terms. I think if you're fishing and you, you're catching them how you want to catch them, whether you're using super light tackle and you're fishing in the edge and setting little traps to again really light gear and a bit of surface fishing. Um, you get just as much enjoyment as the guy who's chucking them out 140 yards, 150 yards, and you know, yeah. I don't know. It's um, it's a such a broad spectrum, isn't it, carp fishing? Well, it's 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 like any recreation, though, isn't it? It, it? We all work hard. We all feel like we're we deserved or earned our re- recreation time. So when we do treat ourselves to a day's fishing or or whatever it is. You want it to be as enjoyable as you can make it and as fulfilling as you can make it and as pleasurable as you can make it. And if that means fishing with a bait boat and four rods, fine. No, it's alternatively, it might be, I want to go and catch a, I want to go fly fishing. I don't want all the clobber. I just want to go and travel light and do things my way because that's how I enjoy my fishing. Uh, And I think, I think I, I like what you said then about fishing on 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 your terms our terms right i think that's really key and that, that's something that was drummed into me uh, particularly by chris when I, when I was fishing with him in the 90s where very often i i would get a little bit frustrated with the um self-imposed limitations of traditional tackle and it was almost like if you want to be in our gang you've got to use a Mark IV split cane carp rod, a Mitchell 300 or a centre pin, and n- never a hair rig, never a fixed, ri- fixed lead, uh, and ideally the least amount of, of weight you can put on your line. And those were the terms of engagement and the way that many of, of my friends liked to fish, and, you know, and I like to fish like that. But on this particular water, which was 60 acres, one, the fish were too big for that tackle. That just wasn't designed to catch fish of that size. There was some huge fish in there, and it wasn't it wasn't up to casting far enough to the fish, or or more importantly, playing a big fish at range. So hooking a fish under the rod tip on a Mark Four, which is about a pound and a half Tesco, is fine if that fish stays under the rod tip. But if it gets eighty, a hundred yards on you with the stretch in the line and the elastic elasticity of the rod, you can't, you can't turn it. You can't control the thing. Um, so I would be challenging my mentors to say, Oh, go on. Can't, can't I just put a hairy gone? I'm using tiger nuts as bait and it's really awkward trying to side hook a tiger nut. Can't I just hairy it? Or please can't I use an arsley gone rather than a swan shot? Cause that, that way I could reach 20 yards. Right. Or, and the biggie, the absolute biggie for me was, uh, electricity right uh particularly electronic bite alarms now under bernard's guidance and and etc and slightly uh, the, the culture at the time as well was under no circumstances ever could you use anything that was electrically powered when fishing including a torch including a torch so for three years Three years, and I've still got, got still got it. I used a hollowed out tin can with a with a little nightlight candle 
in it as my only sort of source of light at night. And, and I laugh, I laugh, and I look back now, and I laugh, and I laugh, and I laugh at how um, twee and ridiculous that was. But the biggie was bite alarms uh, and trying to stay awake all night because you, obviously you couldn't sleep when you were fishing as well because that was also a no-no. To try and stay awake and going through all the sort of strange delusional half, half asleep, half awake stuff that you go through to try and hear your centre pin move or the, the silver paper rustle on your line uh, and then accidentally falling asleep and then getting a bite in the night and missing it because the fish has picked up your bait and then dropped it again. Uh, that to me was counterintuitive to what is sensible, let alone what is traditional. And uh, now you, you get a lot of traditional anglers now. And I'm, I'm really guilty because I, I wrote a book about traditional angling in the 90s when I was fishing with Chris and then I published it in 2009, 2010. And um, it had all those mantras in there, which actually at the time of publication, I didn't agree with anymore. And I certainly don't agree with it now, but it was right and, and true to itself when it was written. So some of the things that are your terms of engagement are, it's entirely your choice, right? And if you prefer to only catch fish by freelining, that's great. If you prefer to catch fish without using any bite alarm or any carbon rods or any whatever else might go with tackle developments in the last 40 years, then that's fine. Um, I'll tell you one that used to make, make, make me chuckle was um, I used to get something terrible for using an umbrella. Come on, you should just use a, a rubber sheet or a poncho or something. Um, or you should never ever use a chair or a bed chair. So for five years, I slept either directly on the ground or on a little inflatable mattress. And I never carried a chair. And now, 25 years later, the stiff joints that I have now, which I'm sure to do with, with those years of fishing in the winter, like just rolling and sleeping back out in the mud and sleeping like that was absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Uh, but at the time, that was what I chose to, that's, that's how I was expected to fish. That's how I chose to fish. Uh, did it make the fish more rewarding when I caught them? No, definitely didn't. Made the experience a little bit more unique. But I think a blend, and Bernard Venable summed it up to me in the late 90s, where he said, um, fishing has always been a progressive sport. It's always been a progressive sport. It's meant to be a progressive sport. Ever since man first learned to fish, he's always tried to make it more efficient. He's always tried to... Um, get get at the upper hand on the fish if you can to, mm -hmm. to to initially to put food on his table and feed his family. More more recently to, to up your rod average or whatever you, you want how you'd want to measure it. Um, and and putting a blend of old and new is kind of nice. So you can have brand spanking new tackle that's traditionally styled like a carbon rod with a cork handle, you know, which is lovely. Uh, but performs that much better. Mm. Um, 
some of the some of the modern reels now are absolutely lovely. The clutches on them are so smooth, so smooth compared to some of the old reels I've used over the years that jar and junk and the spools explode and all these horrible things. So, um, interestingly, on the subject of fly fishing, uh, there is a growing trend at the moment. I'm not, not sure if you're aware of it, fly fishing for carp. Uh, and I've got I've come become aware of it with the, the wild carp. And there's quite a thing, quite a progressive thing in fly fishing, which is to fly fish for carp. And it, it stems from slightly breaking down the sort of dogmas and snobberies of trout and salmon being superior to other fish, which obviously is nonsense. Um and partly in reaction to going and fishing for bone fish in the Seychelles costs you, I don't know how much it is, 20 grand or something. Uh, whereas you can get the same rush and same fight off a, off a wildie in the UK for £10 for a day ticket. And so there's this whole thing um, evolving of fly fishing for carp, which has picked up on a different lens on the watercraft and the observations of fish movement, and particularly picking up the predatory, nation, predatory nature of carp and catching them on streamers, crab and crayfish patterns uh, quite big nymphs uh, and i've done it with weighted nymphs and like sight fishing for carp that have been moving around a bay and as soon as they lock in on that thing they just dash and dive and grab it which is totally the opposite of when i've seen carp feed and otherwise where they're kind of mooching around quite slowly and you get the puffs of silk coming out the gill covers and it's all super slow motion until they get hooked and then, then it's the total opposite. But when they're not threatened, it's super slow. And yet you stick a, a fry pattern or something in front of them and they suddenly bolt and grab it and it startles you. It's like, how, how did that go from there to there? And all of a sudden it's attached to, on the end of my line. Uh, and I think there's possibly some learning there about like Zig Riggs and the patterns we use on Zig Riggs and the curiosity and effectiveness of those. Uh, and whether, uh, you know, there's me thinking out loud now, if I was to combine what I'm seeing happening on the fly fishing front, fishing for carp and zigs, you definitely wouldn't cast your zig out and just leave it there static. You'd be doing like a, um, oh, what's that thing? They, what, that's, what's that technique you use for catching perch where you're sort of jigging it back? Um, like a drop shotting. Dry, yeah, that's it, drop shotting. So like a sort of drop shot version of zig rigging for carp where the fit where the thing is moving back towards you constantly going up and down back and forth um question mark you know i i would anticipate that would be very effective i've, I've seen people do it with adjustable zigs um, where you've got sort of like the inline float so you've got lots of um sensitivity in the line and you can really move the the hook bait i've seen people use like twitching their adjustable zigs uh, to good effect and it's funny you talk about that. There's a there's a reservoir sort of local to me, um, and it is it's it's a um, trout trout fishing only. Um, but there are thousands upon thousands of um, stunted little commons in there. Sam, you know it well, don't you? Um, and a lot of the fly anglers who are is strictly uh, trout fishery only are going up there purely for the carp now. And I hear more and more um, about about the carp coming out on the fly. Um, and it's just something you'd never do. You'd never go to a to a traditional fishery or a, to a carp fishery, would you? And um, 
and hunt for these species like you would when you're sort of fishing for perch or fishing for trout it's just it's just not something you do but as know, i just find it fascinating to be honest uh, me too so i think it i wouldn't i wouldn't <laughs> i think that we've all read the same fishing books we've all been inspired by the same famous anglers traditional or modern and there's a uh, a sort of like a set way an expected way of doing things you know this inherited wisdom of this is how you catch carp and i think the biggie uh, that the biggie is bait really uh, and mike winter used to say to me go to the fish's world go to the fish's world on their terms so mike and i both trout fishermen as well and trout fishermen often say like match the hatch and you know your entomology and what the fish are feeding on uh, and where at any different time of year and you match the hatch and and yet we can't fish and we don't do that we think okay i've got a trusted bait and you know it's, it's hot i'll get monchon mixes it's uh, in the summer i might try them on particles or pulses you know or then in the winter i might look, do a um a lower protein bait or something like that keep them feeding but yet you're conditioning the fish to take on slightly your, too much your terms right whereas if you go to the fish on their terms and use pure watercraft as you would do when you're stalking to find out firstly where they are but then do we know as a trout fisherman might exactly what they're feeding on and then would you match that hatch? And, and I remember it's Lake Lake in Devon actually, and spending all afternoon float fishing maggots and not getting a bite. And yet there were carp all around my swim in different levels of water, both silting up on the bottom and swirling on or just under the surface. And I knew as a trout angler, those fish were taking taking buzzers. They they were just taking stuff that was coming up off the bottom and, and taking it as it rose to the surface. And because the rise patterns were almost identical as a trout, they were more than often taking fairly quickly about three or four inches under the surface. And it's like a swirly boil without actually breaking the surface often. And I thought, God, they're on buzzers. They are absolutely swimming around like blooming whales with their mouths open, just gorging themselves on these clouds of buzzers that are coming up. It's bloodworm larvae. Uh, and yet you'd think fishing maggots, that would have been close enough, but the carp, the carp did not want to know. And yet if I'd flicked a, a buzzer pattern out, I'd probably caught one. So, yeah, yes, thinking about what the carp's feeding on naturally. Um, and, and, and I know top carp anglers do this anyway, right? They, they, they are switched on to natural food sources and... Uh, different parts of the lakes that might be a bit silty than others and that there might be more of a bloodworm bed there or, or snails or whatever. Uh, but a lot of anglers don't. They're too busy trying to get them on their whatever's the going bait uh, and then copying matey boys sufficient next using whichever brand of oily uh, and trying to, trying to replicate his or her success rather than thinking, okay, I'll do it on my terms and go for these fish on their terms as well and, uh, and we'll meet in the middle. Yeah, I can. I yeah, can so it's, it's, it's certainly, yeah, it's overlooked, isn't it? Definitely, yeah, overlooked. Um, so, <clears throat> moving on, I think we we're going to touch on um, sort of like conservation and threats, wouldn't we, to, to wild carp? And we 
uh, me and Sam have mentioned on our podcast um, our sort of um, track record, I guess, with uh, predation and otter predation in particular. Um, so I don't know if we how we how we sort of like move on to there. Um, just yeah, have a have a little chat about conservation and and what you guys are doing to protect these strains. I'll give you I'll give you my view, and I have to be a bit a little bit careful because it's a bit of a touchy subject, isn't it? Um, I'll, I'll give you my view, and this, this isn't me as, as formal spokesperson of the World Cup Trust or anything like this. This is just me, okay? And appealing to anglers, right? And, and I think it was Richard Walker said, there is a journey that anglers take. So when you start fishing, you just want to catch a fish. Then you want to catch another fish or more fish. Then you might want to catch a bigger fish and then you might want to catch the biggest fish and and that's your typical journey uh later mind pete where he said there's another stage which is actually when you've caught all your fish in it and you've got nothing left to prove you actually take your pleasure in helping others to catch fish and you know it might be a youngster or something like that or you might write books or do youtube videos instructional stuff or, or a podcast uh, what I've learned in the past year, and, and partly due to lockdown, you know, time, you know, I lost my job. So four months twiddling my thumbs thinking, how can I be of use to the world when, you know, feeling a bit sorry for myself, but mostly having time to think. I actually concluded there's another stage as well in that, you know, you, you, you reach a certain age or, or stage in your angling career or, or whatever it is. Not, not meaning to sound braggy, but you, you reach a sort of state of contentment that you don't really have much more to prove to yourself or anyone. And you love helping others or inspiring others to go fishing or, or you know, just loving their fishing. The, the stage I discovered this year is actually, there becomes a sort of conservation stage where you, um, you haven't got anything left to prove, but you're just as passionate about your fishing as you've ever been. But you start to notice that things aren't perhaps as they once were. And, and for me, I mean, I'm, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm 46. And I've, I've been fishing since the late 70s. And I've, I've managed fisheries, managed seven fisheries in that time. Uh, I've fished rivers, I've fished lakes. And I've noticed such a degradation in the quality of or not <laughs> number of fish really uh, and, and I think I first became aware of it in the early 90s so fishing and live, living on the River Seven Valley so my local waters were like Arley, Hampton Lode, Bridge North, downstream to Budley, Middle Seven, you know, classic Barbel Alley country as they call it and my thing that I used to love doing was riding my bike a few miles to the river on a Sunday, late afternoon Sunday, just as the matches were finishing. Match fishing then was huge. And the hot, you know, miles and miles and miles of riverbank, just every swim taken up with matchmen. And as you do as a specimen guy, you go and wait till they've all cleared off and then you go and fish over their bait as the sun's dropping and catch all the fish. Uh, and I noticed my catch rates dropping steadily and steadily. And I noticed the match weights reducing steadily and steadily. And, you know, I got talking to the local tackle shops and they're all up in arms because people aren't going to the matches as they once were. They're not coming in and buying the maggots and whatever else as they once were. And it was all a horrible state of affairs. 
and that's when I first learned about the the impact of cormorants on our water particularly hammering the silverfish and over about four or five years what we found in the Midlands is we were tracking the match results of where the silverfish were being caught and where the bigger bags were coming from if we take barbel and some of the bigger chub out of the equation where the bigger bags are you know bleak roach dace small chub where they were coming from and they were all coming out of the town sections they weren't coming out of the, the the lovely countryside sections and it's because the, the cormorants had hammered so many of the fish and yet at that time weren't brave enough to come into the towns and therefore that's where the, the fish had gone to or, or remained so that was my first awareness of predation of fish on a, on a massive scale uh, and you know we've got to take some of the blame because we've overfished the seas and that's why the cormorants came inland and all that stuff um, and then in 2002 I started looking after two lots of syndicate lakes to, there was um, three lakes on a farm the smallest was about the size of a tennis court the, the biggest was probably about three acres and then over the other side of the hill was a 14 acre carp lake and then two smaller two acre carp lakes and onto the bigger waters we we um, we stocked that with a couple of strains of carp I think we put uh, 2020s in and then several hundred smaller fish as well and they were growing great they were coming on but in the course of about three years all six of those lakes became virtually devoid of fish uh, big fish and small fish or carp anyway big big carp small carp and it was only when i saw an, uh, a dog otter running along the dam of one of these that i put two and two together what had happened and we became aware that there was a uh, what i'd call a family of otters or, you know sort of five at one point that had established themselves and uh, asking around in the local tackle shops and it was apparently it was a it was a university in the southwest of england had done some sort of breeding program and they were releasing them in the river team valley and that was one at river team was one of my favorite barbel waters all of a sudden my barbel catches aren't there uh, and in again same sort of period went from seeing shoals of 20 or 30 barbel to no barbel in miles river and then all the carp in, in our lakes just eaten and with the exception of the smaller lakes the, uh, the big ones just too expensive to fence and they just devastated the fishing and so i i became aware of avian predation and four-legged predation and the sensitivity of both subjects in that both cormorants and otters are protected and yes you can get a license to shoot a certain number of cormorants in a year you can get a license to trap or move otters off of your fishery if you've fenced it perhaps uh, and talking to fellow fishermen who have a different view they all say well there's no problem at all because nature finds a balance and once you've run out of fish the apex predator can't sustain itself and therefore will not populate in the same number and over time it will find a balance uh, that might be true my, my first-hand experience of it is that 
these the the, the otters particularly just move they'll empty a water and then when it's empty they'll just move on to the next water and then empty that and then move on to the next water and empty that and it's heartbreaking to see fish that i've seen go in at a small weight and grown on or big fish that i've caught or big target fish lying there with its throat eaten out um, and feeling rather helpless to protect my fish from something that is ruining one one the livelihood of the, of the syndicate or the fishery and ruining my sport simply and i mentioned rockford earlier you know i think i think that club spent that's part of a hundred grand uh, fencing that one lake or two lakes so it's an enormous cost to a fishery to try and protect it um, but for me with this conservation hat on as i've now got this year that little bit of time over over lockdown and covid made me but what to what you know push comes to shove if i got ill or you know you get you know your thoughts go along the lines of how long have i got left and all that stuff if i could only fish for one fish what would it be and what, what would that where would that be and, and it would be definitely wild carp in a really oldie worldy setting probably a little moat or something somewhere and yet the reality sunk in of i've seen what's happened to massive big carp waters uh the same will happen to all waters and these fish that are already incredibly rare how long have they got left and they're typically in in smallish waters as well that wouldn't necessarily make it a a, a big water um so a little moat around an old manor house for example it's only a little canal in effect isn't it that's probably three or four foot deep and it wouldn't take long to empty that and i then started looking at the waters i had discovered over the past 30 years that got wildies and uh, fishing some of them and was slightly alarmed when you you reel a fish in and you see that the top the top lobe of its tails had a otter nip you know that square otter nip out of it uh and then you see anything up to a dozen cormorants with their wings out drying themselves in the sun and digesting their food and you start really thinking these fish that have lived here for you know it might it might be 700 years it, it might be a lot less than that but it's hundreds of years and they've existed simply because they've just been allowed to get on and do their own thing undisturbed. All of a sudden, we've messed it up by reintroducing otters, overfishing the sea so the cormorants have moved in. And through angling tastes, a lot of anglers by choice would probably want to stock those waters with king carp, which would be just as a, much of a, a disaster for these wildies. Uh, you start looking at a funnel that's getting narrower and narrower for the future of these fish and hence why uh what started out as three friends me, me and two others uh, has now grown to more friends people i've met along the way who are passionate about wildies we decided to do something about it we decided to conserve these fish uh, these older strains and what started out as a noble wouldn't it be lovely if and this would be great and wouldn't uh, wouldn't we feel good if we did this 
it's actually become a little bit of a rescue mission when you look at the predation that's happening on some of these really really um, quite well known but old strain uh, old strain of carp waters that you think how many winters have these fish got left how quickly can we act how quickly can we lift some of these fish uh, legally put them into a uh, conservation pool which uh, Conservationists call it an ARC project, I'm told. So it's like Noah's Ark. <laughs> two by two, they go in and then they, they have little babies. Um, so the, the, the intention and the plan is to net some of these fish, put them in a conservation pool, and then run a breeding program whereby either those fish can be then reintroduced to their original host water, should, they, should it ever get predated, or go into other conservation pools or other angling pools and just through uh, playing the numbers game, helping their survival. And to do that is, isn't just about lifting and moving fish, it's about changing anglers' perceptions about them. So we all love a big carp. We all admire a, a fantastic scale pattern on a mirror carp, we love that. We all uh, like the fish that you can see as a little baby in the palm of your hands that you think, oh, that's going to grow. Look at the shoulders on the thing. Look, that is going to be a fantastic fish when that's bigger. Uh, and because it's in that climate of biggest is best, there's a job to be done in saying, actually, you know, for all that stuff where biggest can be best, there's also these little, little carp that remind us of how carp used to look or how fishing, carp fishing once was, you know, relatively recently, you know, sort of 70 years ago. Uh, and probably have been part of our upbringing as anglers or part of our journey that we might have caught them when we were young kids and then moved on. But there's a, there's a, a valid reason to appeal to hearts and minds to say, we can't let these things just die out or be predated. We, we need to do like the, the rare breed survival trust has done with some of these old, old breed of farm animals and just say, let's just save them. And put them in a little pond somewhere and we'll also fence it we'll net it if we have to but we'll know that they're safe and we'll run the breeding programs so that they can go into the waters and then can be fished for without us feeling bad for hooking them um, but we're doing our bit to look after the little guy and kind of balance the scales of where we might have buggered it up elsewhere we're actually doing the right thing and looking after things for them um, so that's the that's the basis of the wild carp trust that's what we're here to do it's a conservation charity it's a trust and part of the reason it's called a trust is that we're trusting people with the future of these fish and sometimes trusting them with the locations of these fish but we're in it we're not in, it's not a commercial thing it's not you know we, we live in a capitalist world and it's kind of nice to be not doing something capitalist mm. it's nice just to be saying we know in that in our hearts we're doing the right thing. And if, if that takes a lot of graft and a lot of investment and time and whatever it is, we know we're doing the right thing. So to, to put that into, into a brief nutshell, what the Wild Carp Trust wishes to do is obviously conserve the, the, the bloodline of, of wild carp, heritage carp. Um, and to do that, your, your intention is to set up these little pools, which aren't fished for, obviously, um, where wild carp or heritage carp can just breed on, live out their existence, 
uh, reproduce and, and just keep on going. Is uh, Have I got that right? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's the backup plan. You know, it's the, the backup plan. What's the primary plan? <laughs> there's probably there's probably three plans actually. So the right. I call it a backup plan, as in if we want to conserve these fish, the best thing to do is is help them in the water they're already in today. Yeah. And that might be otter fencing, that might be what whatever it is to look after and help them where they are here and now. The backup is or oh, the, the, the fallback option is that we should shit happen and that water gets polluted, predated, stopped with king carp and effectively ruined. We've still got those fish somewhere else. They are conserved somewhere else so that that strain remains. And then the third bit, which is like the ultimate goal is, you know, we're looking after these fish that are close to home, these heritage carp, but they're still remarkably still the true original species wild carp of the danube and these other rivers that are still there right and they're they're in uh, living gene banks which is like a, a a lake with a six foot fence around it and they're being studied by scientists and, and such like and there are these populations in the wild that have been studied and actually there are breeding programs that are taking these wild carp and then reintroducing them to the um the sort of brackish waters of the caspian sea uh, uh, you know, and my ultimate goal, our ultimate goal, would be to be able to assist that activity either through funding or rolling our sleeves up and going on holiday to wherever it is, and just helping the original one that has benefited every carp angler in the world ever has to thank the activities of that little true wild carp that's doing its damnedest just to hang on against all odds. And I would love to be able to get enough memberships together, corporate sponsors together, whatever it takes to be able to say in some sort of annual report or something, look guys, here's a photo of a carp and its babies and here's it being reintroduced back into the wild in an environment where this thing was virtually extinct. And for, for however much we love the sporting quality of, of wildies or, or normal carp, or however much we feel good about ourselves for doing our bit to look after the carp we've got in the UK. The, the big picture thing is the original species wild carp, which, you know, without them, we wouldn't have carp fishing. We wouldn't have our sport that we love. Yeah. And that's very easy to lose sight of, isn't it? And, um, and forget about. So I, I think this is how we first started chatting. Actually, I think, I think uh, I think you followed us and I messaged you and said, how can we get involved? How can we help? Um, so before we go on to that side of things, I mean, and obviously we're, we're romanticizing about, um, if that's a word, about uh, you know, wild carp and it all sounds fantastic. Um, and I want to dust off my, uh, my, my traditional tackle and, and go and commission them. Is that something that we should be doing? And I know we're getting a little bit meta here, but should we be promoting fishing for wild carp in your eyes or should we actually be leaving them be what what are your thoughts on that we should be fishing for them okay uh, and I, I say that quite quickly and clearly um so with my other hat on i sit on the uh, committee of the grayling society and I, i'm i'm their editor of all their publications and there is a constant tension 
a really healthy, good, constant tension in the Grayling Society of uh, amongst the researchers versus the anglers of uh, should we be, cons- mm-hmm. you know, we're all about protecting, looking after, caring for these fish. And, and with carp, you know, you look at all the cradles and looking equipment we have now and clinic and all this sort of stuff yeah. to absolutely make the most, you know, do the least damage pos- possible. Um, and yet in the Grayling Society, the conservatives, um, conservators would say, you should just leave them alone. You know, the best, if you, if you are that precious about your mm. fish and you care about them that much, leave them alone. Don't go and put a hook in them and stress them out by reeling them in and uh, all this sort of stuff. It's a good point. Uh, yeah. And then on, on uh, the other thing I've become aware of through the Grayling Society is this whole keep them wet or keep fish wet mm. campaign. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. It's, yeah. I think it came from America whereby uh, you shouldn't really take the fish out of the water, mm. both the sort of distortion to the internal organs and all that precious stuff that goes on. Uh, and also, so now in the Grayling Society, I, I'm not allowed to publish any photo of a fish that isn't dripping with water. So it's, mm. you know, you hold it under the water and then one, two, three, click, and then back it goes in. And if it doesn't have water dripping off of it, it's been out too long. Uh, and the seconds of air exposure on the gills is claimed to be detrimental to the fish. Uh, so I'm taking my Grayling Society hat off now and I'm putting my fennel hat on or my carp angler hat on in saying that actually if it wasn't for the anglers giving a damn about the quality of our waterways and the pollution that goes in or the fact that the fish there aren't as many fish as there once were and and you know I remember seeing an interview with John Wilson years ago and he was saying you know that we used to be a roach nation. There used to be roach everywhere. And then mm. the cormorants had them all. And now, now the only fish that survive are the ones that grow quick enough to get out of a cormorant's gob, uh, which is carp. You know, it's led to carp. And uh, as long as we can fence them from otters, we're, we're going to have great sport with the carp. But actually, I think it's a little bit like the Angling Trust work or the, the anglers are the guardians of the waterways. They're the ones who will kick up a fuss if things aren't right in, in whatever that not right is. And if we weren't passionate, obsessed, um, if fishing or carp hadn't defined our life and, you know, hand on heart, I stand up and say, I am a carp angler. You know, if you want to cut me open, you'd say it'd read carp, you know, Um, because it's defined my life so much over the years that if you didn't have the anglers, you these fish could just disappear and no one would know or no one would care or, or even be aware of the, the, the extent to which things had changed. So I think you should fish for them because it sustains that passion. I think for me anyway, with, with wildies, God, when a, a three or a four pound wildie will fight as hard as a 15 pound king carp. It would just try and annihilate you and that sheer adrenaline and excitement of hooking the thing is what grabbed me and compelled me and made me think wow that's like you know i'm 16 years old and like girls can go right out the window i do not give a toss about them Mm -hmm. it's about carp you know fishing's for me uh because i want more of this it's better than any any buzz i could possibly get through any any um type of stimuli at art college you did it right Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't met the right women. I don't yeah, know. that's right. Yeah. Um, 
but th- that's that's that intensity of passion that anglers have that I'm sure you must get in golf or other sports or whatever, but definitely anglers really care, really care about their sport. I agree with you. I think, I mean, I don't want to sound elitist or I don't, for want of a better phrase, I think, I think it's partially getting dissipated to a degree. I don't want to kind of um, bring negativity to it at all. But I mean, going back to what you were saying about not, keeping fish out for too long um i think that that gets overlooked a lot these days you, you do see it unfortunately and i think it was uh bob james i was listening to one of his talks i think it was a, a barbell society something like that uh and he was saying you know you keep you want to get a little video of the fish out of the water hold your breath because that's what the fish is doing and obviously it's not quite how it works but it's still a good point made and i think people do overlook that kind of thing and it's almost yes we have the the carp mats and they're very padded these days but it does kind of seem that the carp kind of comes secondary to getting that perfect photo um and i think just from my personal you know observation i think you know perhaps we could do a little bit better um as a as a group of of people uh, by and large yeah, not and everyone I, I of probably, course, but you know I'd probably speak on behalf of a lot of traditional anglers as well that yeah. and here's something i i will i will say boldly and they'll hate me for saying it a lot of that traditional gear don't look after the fish very well no and you'll often see a traditional angler not using a knocking mat or using a wide mesh net because it looks nice on the wooden arms and whatever uh, and they might not use the correct way and stuff or whatever it is but the, the biggie i've observed is the number of anglers who land their fish and then take it straight out of the water mm. they don't leave it in the landing net for a few minutes to recover uh they're, they're so thrilled at getting it in the net that they just want to get it straight out of the water and start looking at the thing um and that's not right you should leave it in the net just to let it catch its breath that's the right term uh and then calm it down and then and that gives you time to set it all up as well doesn't it so that's all your weighing kit up or unhooking kit or whatever and it, it, it's the right it's the logical thing to do but adrenaline kicks in or emotions kick in or, or just lack of education mm. or whatever it is um but yeah you, you, i i definitely i I think the keep and wet thing is like 10 seconds or 20 seconds or something that it should be out of water mm. and two minutes. Yes. The fish isn't them, dead. It? It's, and you might be pouring water over it, but yeah. Uh, ouch. That, I'll tell you a story that flip, flips that on its head. Mine. Um, I must be one of the last people to have a fish set up and, and uh, it's in my study behind me now. A fish set up. What do you mean? Taxidermy. So ah, a cased, I would love cased carp. Yeah, right. I'd love one. And it used to be done olden days before the yeah. camera, and you like, that's, a, oh, that's suitable for a glass case, my boy. Let's set that fish up, put it in a case. And I, I had a fish, a carp, done in about '95. Uh, it was a particular year where there was a massive explosion of, of they'd spawned a year or two before, and there was just thousands of these things. And I thought, as a souvenir, I'll get this two-pound carp set up. And uh, it was from Devon and my friend put it in a bucket with no water or anything 
uh, in, wrapped in a bin bag in a bucket and he lived in London and that fish was still alive and still flapping when he got home four hours later. And I, how they do it, it's just miraculous Incredible. how they do it. Yeah, Hard they animals. just survive. Yeah. Uh, and it, might you see some of the fish farms in Europe, and they're the way they manhandle the fish and they're throwing them in the back in buckets of a tractor and moving them from one thing to another. It's I don't know. They are hardy fish, but mm. that just, that's not an excuse for mm. for not treating them right. Absolutely. Okay. So so we. We, we won't keep you too much longer, Fennel, but we've established that we should be fishing for wild carp. Um, we should be learning about them or, or heritage carp. Do you, uh, and this is a little, just for a little bit of fun, really, how should we be fishing for them? Do you feel we should be sticking to traditional methods? What are your views on that? Fish simply is my answer. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm, I'm trying not to say use this tackle or that tackle because it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I, I tend to fish for them with all vintage gear, but uh, and I, I fly fish for them. Uh, they're little fish, so imagine you're fishing like to tench gear, really. So, a pound, pound test curve rod, one and a half pound test curve rod is fine, can be made of any material you like, uh, but fish simply. So, don't I, I wouldn't suggest bolt rigging or uh, and doing the usual carp thing for them, stalk the fish. And really, to appreciate the fight, use the least amount of weight on the line. So if you can free line and catch them, you'll be playing the fish, not not feeling that, playing the lead, you know, that, that mm. dull sensation. And the closer you can get to them, the better. And one of the easiest ways and best ways to catch them is just sprinkle a load of bread crust in the margin at dusk, uh, two foot off the bank, and let and wait for them to start clooping. And then just creep along and drop, drop your your bread with no line on the water, um, just as BB used to do, uh, and wait for them to take. Uh, and I love using a centre pin mostly because when they do go, they that first run is so fast and so powerful that you can just let them run that much easier. Um, so I would say fish, fish simply, fish light, fish be mobile, take a roving approach, stalking approach. Uh, climb trees as much as fish and spot your fish and look where they are and all that sort of mm. stuff we all love doing. Um, but fish simply. I think there's, there's, I think that if, if there's something that we can learn from fishing from wildies as carp anglers is we, we don't have to take too much clobber with us. Oh, crikey. Uh, I've just changed my car. I used to have an Audi estate and I got so paid off at in June, and I couldn't get all my carp gear in it. I couldn't. I couldn't get it all in there, in a <laughs> in an estate car. That's right? a bad sign. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, that's and it's it's my own it's my own fault, you know. And half mm. of it was camping kit and food and all the all those luxuries we take. Uh, and I ended up getting a Volvo estate because that was bigger. Uh, you know, gone into old man territory. Uh, but just so much gear and. I think the other thing that, and off the back of that is your watercraft goes out the window as well. And I remember the first time I ever saw somebody hammering bivy pegs into a, oh into God, gravel. And, uh, and I was like, what the hell are they doing? You know, I've just spent all my fishing life being terrified of stubbing my foot on the ground and sending carp spooking off. Uh, and all that gear 
the fish know you're there as soon as you turned up and but by default you've got to sit and wait often uh to get the fish to come back in into mm. range or to start feeding again so the it was like we were saying with pete earlier that that fishing on their terms or your terms and just traveling light um yeah for wild is is good yeah a couple of months ago i was i just got a little bit disillusioned with my with my angling um so just for a couple of weeks i think two weeks i just took out uh, i've got a mitchell 300 half bale um and a, a a chapman's 500 rod it's no you know cart mark four but but still it you know that does the job and just super you know little backpack on i got got a um a bamboo net that, that's been traditionally made doing that for two weeks just completely reset me you know realign me with with angling and what angling really means to, to me anyway and um yeah and then when i decided to pick up my my sort of my, my more modern carp gear i was in a totally different zone and i think you're right i think it, it that kind of angling really gets you back in touch with what's going on um it's magic really I is tell magic. You, uh, i like that so i'll tell you what's happened there and this is something that bernard venables taught me and i think i mentioned earlier about seeing angling through artists eyes right and he would often have this big debate about him and Richard Walker back in the 50s in the early days of angling times. And Richard Walker being responsible for the scientist's view of angling and technology's king. And you use logic to catch your fish and, and define your angling. And, you know, and all the engineering that goes into the Keaton and, and the campaigns and whatever. And Bernard would simply say, see the world through artists' eyes. So there's a, you're looking for a certain aesthetic and feeling something in your heart that tells you this, this feels right in the here and now for whatever reason, mm. this is right. And, and, and all anglers feel it. You might get a cracking sunset and you're out with the camera and you're taking a picture of your rods with the, with the sunset behind and you think, wow, you know, fishing gives me that. And I love being able to go to what I call timeless waters that are, very rural usually no, no sort of reminders of modern age or industry or anything like that they're really out the way quiet places where you can just sit and immerse yourself in in the moment and for me for some reason the aesthetic that's right for me is vintage gear uh, mm. mostly because it's organic not because it's old because a wooden rod kind of looks nice amongst organic things yeah yeah. and and handcrafted stuff and you know and and i could go on for ages like this you know things like a wax jacket for me i love you know they stink they stink the car out but i love them because it's organic and it just feels right in that moment doesn't and seem out of place does it, it no. feels like it's meant to be there yeah i know what you mean yeah yeah and it it can create a very different angling experience and it I'd recommend it just even if it's just one day a year, mm. probably go for the 16th of June, the start of the old season. <laughs> go be. You know, and I say, I'm going to have a tr traditional day fishing for wildlies or tench or whatever it is, just to cut through all the half a century of marketing speak from people who wanted to sell us fishing tackle or bait and just cut through all that and just go fishing for the pure pleasure of going fishing that uh yeah that'll reboot your soul and everything else hugely yeah absolutely
What do you think, Pete? Should we do it? Sorry, I've just uh, I've I've just unmuted. Hang on, look, I'll start my video. You've been going Ooh. to sleep, have you? No, oh, but look, got? I've got a I've got a visitor. I've got a four-year-old who's refusing to uh, <laughs> to be in bed on her own and requesting her dad. So I've been muting the mic on and off. Um, so for the last sort of twenty minutes, I've been very quiet. But yeah, it's um, I just love the idea of it. It's a whole travel light. It, it suits me. And my, my angling growing up is what I was all about. Um, and I think it's something. To be honest with you, with my fishing, it's ne I've never. I've never sort of gone out there and I wanted to catch like a wildy or a heritage sort of carp that we're talking about. Um, but it's, I, I do think it's a little bit of me. It's something I'd, I'd sort of like love, love to do. Um, yeah, I, d I don't know. It's, um, it's one of those things. It's definitely a part of me um, and something that would certainly spark my interest, but. I think I think of just finding the waters, isn't it? And finding somewhere that's um that sort of like holds those fish. I know in the past, Sam, especially when we we, we were younger and we were really sort of getting into the carp scene, we spent many hours, didn't we? Or many days I could say, sort of searching for waters. Oh god. And yeah. we would we would look for these places and we'd find lakes and we would watch them Walk forever for looking for any signs of the <laughs> carp and yeah. very how often did we ever find fish? It was very rare. Very rare. So yeah. rare, wasn't it? Yeah. Speaking yeah. to owners and, yeah, trying to get on these places. But but... Amazing, amazing memories to look back on that. I mean, I certainly look back on that so fondly. You know, it was it was mm -hmm. great times. I laughed earlier, just personal thing, when, when Fenner was saying about his uh, bean can with the light. Do you remember taking the old um, the old little paraffin light down to, to the harbour? fishing for dog oh fish. god yeah wow <laughs> we kept it traditional then didn't we that right back in the day Jeez, yeah god a paraffin lamp yeah you just you wouldn't dream of taking one now would you <laughs> no no <laughs> no but but probably love it if you did that's the thing yeah lose touch of it don't you i i used to have a friend because we used to get so so ribbed for anything electrical so paraffin lamps we tried our catch rate went terrible because we got paraffin <laughs> on our hands it was, it was affecting our bait yeah. so he ended up buying an old uh, an authentic miner's lamp a welsh miner's lamp yeah. which looked the part but they, they, the uh, the glass gets sooted up on them really quickly <laughs> so, so his swim was always um a very sort of um uh, shall i say it like ladies of the night type dingy kind of <laughs> illumination <laughs> coming out uh, a, a slightly different um, aesthetic or, or atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just talking about traveling like there, Pete, that uh, one of the things I often say to people is that the more you leave behind, the more you can travel into nature or the deeper you can travel into nature, be it physically like miles on the riverbank or miles up a mountain or wherever it is. And that time spent searching and traveling helps you uh, kind of go a bit deeper into your own nature as well. And fishing is very reflective. It's very romantic and it's very contemplative. And to be allowed time and to go to really wild places that there's nothing jarring. Everything's just natural. 
uh, helps you start reflecting inwards as well and thinking about not just whatever it is that's needing to prompt itself in your mind at the time. So what I would recommend to you two guys is get yourself a holiday Wales, head to Wales, but stop at the River Wye, have a few a few days barbell fishing on the on the Wye, mm. and allow that scenery and that experience to just wash away all the sort of stresses that we have in our lives, and then go up to Panticlin. So and both waters will be on the Wye and us ticket, and go and hike up your mountain and catch your your wildie. Take one rod, loaf of bread fish with the wind at your back and just freeline that bread and let the wind take it out and drift it out. It's like long trotting out into the lake and wait for those lips to come up. Uh, and then just hold on, hold on tight. <laughs> uh, but that experience of a journey, uh, a fishing like a boy's adventure, proper boy's adventure with your bamboo rods or whatever it is, uh, doing it fennel style, but just going wild in, in a wild country for a wild fish is fantastic and i guarantee you'll come back with batteries recharged and um keen to do you know, keen to do any sort of fishing but really thinking like wow i've i've, I've been there mm. and i've come back enriched incredible experience yeah yeah the wyron ask foundation that seems like an interesting thing as well yeah i fished it uh, several months ago yeah Very interesting okay I mean, Fennel, it did, I, I get the, the feeling I could talk to you for days and days and days. Um, but uh, just to kind of round things off, how can, how can our listeners and how can us, how, how can we get involved and support the Wild Carp Trust? I would encourage you to think about carp and wildies and your own fishing and listen and reflect upon what we've discussed and talked about. I'd love you to want to know more. And I'd love you even more than that to want to care more or do something about it to help. Uh, first point of call I would ask is it come and have a look at our website. That's wildcarptrust.org. We've also got a Wildcarp Trust Facebook group with loads of chatter going on. And we've got the Instagram account. Uh, that will give you a really good understanding about what we're up to. And hopefully then in about January, we'll be able to let you join. And that's when you can get access to more information and publications and fishing events and meeting like-minded people and all this stuff and and most importantly contributing to the conservation activities that we've got so the pools the breeding programs the work with fish farms and such like uh, if you know of pools that have wild deers we'd love to know and hear from you because um, we are keen to know you know where are they you know then what are they uh, also if you have or know of pools that might be suitable for stocking with wildies so like no king carp or no other type of carp in there uh, that would be great or indeed if you have uh, waters that are what i call self-contained so they're not on a streamline a stream coming in or stream going out self-contained waters are great uh, for stocking and using as a conservation pool so any of that would be great uh, and i'm there in all these websites and everything else i'm, I'm quite active so if you want to come and have a chat with me uh, please reach out and happy to, uh, to to discuss things further further with you fantastic fantastic and just just lastly uh didn't plan this at all but i know you've written um quite a few books fennel if i i would like to, to to purchase one a where is the best place to go and buy one of those books b 
which would you recommend for uh, a carp angler, a modern carp angler like myself that, that still kind of romanticizes about the old fashioned stuff? What would you choose for me? So obviously recommend my book, Wild Carp. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the obvious one, but it's also my, my favorite, best, biggest book as well. Uh, I'd love you to buy that directly from me, from fanosprory.com. Uh, and if you do that, I'll sign it or inscribe it with anything you want. Uh, if you don't want to buy it from me, uh, you can get it from any bookshop. Fantastic. Fennelspriory.com. Yeah. Okay. I shall check it out. Fennel, thank you so much. Uh, it's been fantastic. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Sam. Absolute genuine pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no. right. yeah brilliant. Cheers, guys. Perfect. Thank you.